0: With a clothing rental membership from Armour, you can build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days then, when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-use styles. I just did my quiz and have selected a few dresses for the summer from Bowdoin, one of my favorite brands that I can't typically afford. And I also got a double-breasted black blazer from a new-to-me designer, a classic item that I have been on the hunt for but too scared to commit to until I know it's the one. For you expecting mamas, for those who are working or those who are style-obsessed, Welcome to About Progress, a podcast devoted to ordinary people who are striving to make realistic improvements in their lives and reach their goals, however big or small. We are building a community of men and women who love to push themselves to overcome obstacles and make something special of their lives, all when maintaining a healthy balance. In short, people who know life is about progress, not perfection. Hello, hello! Thank you for listening in today. If you are a regular, thank you for tuning in each Wednesday. And you guys, I so appreciate the reviews that you have been leaving on iTunes. From the bottom of my heart, it means the world to me, so please keep them coming if you are able. And if you're new here, welcome! If you like what you hear today, please subscribe so it's easy for you to get the latest episode. You can also find past episodes in my archives as well as on my website aboutprogress.com and you can also find more on me um, on social media at aboutprogress. I'll have a short do-something highlight for you at the end of this episode, so make sure you stay around to listen to that. Let's talk about the interview I am sharing with you today. It is with my good friend, Juliana. She works with the homeless. She describes herself as a real softy, and she has served various underprivileged populations throughout the past 10 years, but she also has so much strength and sass even that makes her perfect for this really demanding work. She's so relatable though, everything she shares can be applicable to anyone who is listening regardless of how much they are willing or able to serve others um, to the extent that she does we speak about her work with the homeless as well as other populations how service helped her through an incredibly difficult time and how she stays strong and centered enough to meet all the demands of her job as well as her family which includes a new baby oh she has so much wisdom so many things here that i hope everyone can listen to so let's get on to the interview I'm here with Juliana. Hi, Juliana. Hi, Monica. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I would love
1: it if you could introduce yourself. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. So, I'm Juliana. um, I'm originally from Seattle, Washington. My husband and I have lived in a couple different states, in the West and the East Coast, and we moved to the Bay Area about two and a half years ago. Um, About six months ago, we had our first little baby, and I have a career in the social services, which I think is what makes me interesting enough to be on your podcast today. I want to spend most of our time on
0: your work in the social services, but before we go into that, I want to talk about your call to serve underprivileged populations, and I feel like this probably didn't start um, when you started your career. It probably started before then. So can you tell us a little bit about the side of you and when it came to play in your life and the importance it's taken in your life?
1: Absolutely. So I've always been a softie. I've always been a sensitive person with a lot of feelings who wanted to help. You know, I think in the second grade, I won like a humanitarian award or something in my school. Um, Mm -hmm. But even with that, growing up, I never thought I wanted to go into social work or the family services because of the stigma, the stigma of these burnt out, grumpy, hairy leg social workers Mm -hmm. who were underpaid and overworked and just seemed exhausted. And I mean, I'm going purely off stereotypes now, but the stereotype of just feeling the weight of the social justice issues on your shoulders every day that did not appeal to my little softy heart. Yeah. So I knew that I wanted I knew I wanted to connect with people and I knew that I wanted to bring joy to people's lives. And honestly, when I first started college in my early 20s, I explored some very different options. I looked into design and I worked at a couple scrapbooking stores and I was actually on some design teams and really I was a creative friend for some of my um, social groups in my early 20s, oh, wow. and I looked into business and writing and had some of these, you know, alternate lives and scholarships and pursuits for a while. Um, and really, if you asked me 15 years ago, would you be working with the homeless or, you know, with marginalized populations, I probably would have laughed in your face and said, I love people, but I love people too much. and I don't think I could handle it. So yeah. So I think I'm just as surprised as anyone that this this is where I've ended up.
0: Huh, I like that last thing you said, you love people too much. So that isn't, I mean, that's a genuine reason to maybe stare away from mm-hmm. something like this because your work is really emotional. I'm sure at times and mm-hmm. dealing with these, with these um, populations who are so vulnerable, who have you um, primarily helped with in your work?
1: So, um, so I'm counting my social service career starting in college with some of my first, um, internships going through you know my later 20s um so I've worked with a lot of different demographics I did some early work with aging populations I actually have a certificate and minor in gerontology I care a lot about ageism I think Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting social prejudice we have which is probably a conversation for a different day but I care a lot about aging populations and I worked a lot with um some aging resettlement programs, and some adults in hospice. I also was able to have some positions both in Seattle and Salt Lake where I was able to work with several different marginalized groups, um, including refugees and battered women, adults with disabilities, children from low-income households. Um, I've been able to do some mentoring work um, with some women in poverty that were facing some racial and ethnic barriers. And I got to help be like a mentor, bridge, help them feel connected to a different part of their community. Um, and most recently, I, the last two and a half years, I've been working with the homeless, which is a population that I worked with, you know, off and on for the past six, seven years, but I've really narrowed in and focused on it the last two and a half.
0: So how much of what you do is office work versus being in the field and interacting with people who are in this demographic?
1: Um, so that's an excellent question. So some of that has recently shifted, um, because actually in the last couple of weeks I've switched positions. I was at this exciting small nonprofit for mm-hmm. almost two and a half years. And in the last couple of weeks I shifted roles. So I'm now working, um, for the County managing a County homeless program, which is very, um, similar in some ways to the work I did in, um, at the small nonprofit in other ways it's different. So, When I volunteered and then um, worked as a client advocate at, you know, the small local agency, I was 99% client facing. Um, I rarely left the social service office. I rarely went outside to meet the clients, you know, kind of outside. Um, But I was I was the point. I was if you are brand new to homelessness, if you are fleeing domestic violence and you don't know where to turn, if you have been kicked out of the shelter or your car is broken down and you don't know where to go and you are walking to our, our organization and you are hungry and lost. I I am the first place. I'm the first face that you see. Wow. I am the face that determines I mean, I I don't know if I determine a lot of things, but I I help with the paperwork and I welcome you and I help you get food and I I sit you down and help connect you with resources and do that immediate um, triaging and case management. So very in the trenches, front lines, you know, some of these Clients are brand new to seeking resources and support. Some of them haven't eaten for a while or they haven't showered for a while, but I am that point of contact that helps them triage to their next resources, whether they are on site, at that local agency, or somewhere else. Um, but that that has been my role and that has been the the wing of the agency that I that I supervise and led. So very in the trenches, client facing, you know, a lot of face-to-face mm-hmm. hand-holding interactions.
0: It seems like there is oh has oh there has got to be so many stories that you could tell that represent your time spent um in these trenches as you said. Um do you have some in in mind that are especially meaningful for you that impacted the work you do and maybe even impacted
1: you, impacted you personally? Absolutely. Um So I have so many stories. Sometimes when people ask me, I don't know where to start. Um, Unfortunately, some of them are best told in person and Mm -hmm. and maybe not on broadcast, podcasts because of confidentiality or whatnot. But I have a few that were really um, life-changing. I think one thing Mm -hmm. that I want to emphasize is that some of the stories are really heartfelt and sincere, and I hope to share one or two of those. And some of them are just hilarious. I don't think you can work with vulnerable (laughs) populations without just like, you get the hoot, like oh my goodness! Sorry. Did you really just say that? Like, <laughs> okay. um, you, you really—they keep you on your toes. You uh-huh. do, you do. Um In the same ways that when I worked with you know older adults on hospice and you know in memory care wings and they were declining of dementia. Sometimes they are so close to death and it's sentimental and beautiful and they're having these visionary, beautiful experiences. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they are just a hoot and they're like flirting with you or asking to take you off to Hawaii or just (laughs) saying these absurd things. And you think, oh my goodness, like, you know, those special close to death moments that was sure fleeting, like you've got your quick wit back. So it's the same, (laughs) I think, with the homeless. Sometimes it is very sweet and sensitive and sometimes it keeps you on your toes.
0: Yeah.
1: I think, so I just, I described a minute ago how my office was set up. So I um, had been the first point of contact. If you you were homeless and you were right off the streets and you were seeking help, maybe um, often what would actually happen is if people were outside and they were um, panhandling, also mm-hmm. called flying a sign. That's the that's the slang word for holding a sign up. That it's for fly, board flying and asking a for sign? Help. Flying a sign. Okay. That's, that's what the cool kids on the street call it. Uh-huh. Okay. Um so often someone would be flying a sign and someone would give them a resource card or a business card to our organization or someone else's. Oh, okay. Maybe we take to a water bottle or a granola bar would be like, here's your, do- here- here's your dollar, here's your water, you know, go get some help. Oh, wow. Um, so often clients come in that way. They, are, mm-hmm. they have been rejected and rejected and maybe someone yeah. has redirected them to get help. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that can come. That redirection can still be pretty bold or craft. Um, And honestly, just sitting in, not a lot of sitting, but working in that office when new clients come in and literally my job is to see them and to let them know you are seen. I recognize that you have a name. I see that you are hungry and I will feed you. I see that your clothes are dirty and you are essentially naked and my job is to clothe you. I see, I see that you are heartbroken and you are downtrodden and you are overcome with grief and rejection and abuse. And my mm-hmm. job is to be present with you. And my job is to hear your stories and hold your hand. And there may not be answers. The shelter beds might be full. And there definitely are not simple, straightforward solutions to your complex pain and situation. But I am pledging to do my best to sit and be present with you while we navigate this. Um just the nature of that being my role always felt very profound and very Mm -hmm. humanizing to me. Um, I absolutely, the times where you really connect with a client and you can tell that they, they are connecting back with you and they are reaching out um, out of sincerity because they trust you and they feel safe with you, not necessarily out of um, any, any other reaction that's, that's always especially moving. Now, of course, I think anytime you're reaching out for help and you're reaching out to an appropriate organization, I always cheer that on, even if you're, you know, your mood or your mannerisms might not be, you know, polished exactly. I think if you're reaching out for help to an appropriate resource, I always cheer that on. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes you, sometimes you really connect with clients. Sometimes you connect with clients that are often very different from you, but then after you've connected, you feel, you know, you you feel connected and you feel very human um, with them. I also want to clarify that most of the clients, I worked with a diverse group of clients. I worked with clients who were, younger runaways. I worked with clients that were older and they were in their 70s and they'd been scammed out of their you know, home or their retirement buildings mm. or their spouses had died. I worked with disabled homeless adults. I worked with um, those who were transgender and gay and battered and um, were some that were homeless refugees or English was not their first or second language. Mm. Um, so no two client stories were the same. Yeah. Um, although many of them had some overarching similarities.
0: I, I've i been curious to know what are some common misconceptions about people who are homeless?
1: So I think the first one is it's easy for people to see um, these high-risk populations that are unbathed and they are desperate and they are sometimes behaving bizarrely or in ways that we hope we are never behaving. And we judge them so harshly and we judge them to the point where we no longer associate that they are human or that they are people anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, even if we, even if we give them something, even if we give them a bottle of water and a dollar bill, or even if we tell them, no, we're not even looking them in the eye. We don't even, you know, we're not even looking them in the face. We just, we interact with them in the way that we've decided to interact. And then we just keep on going. Um, And we often in society just, I think, feel so disconnected from people that are that obviously vulnerable and that obviously high risk that we forget that they, that they're still people and they know, they know that they are unbathed. And they feel generally just as uncomfortable in that guilt and in that shame and in that lack of, um, you know, stable living as we would um and that is an inc- the rates mental illness caused by being homeless not homelessness actually caused by mental illness the number of people who lose their housing and then the traumatic transition to being homeless and then the social rejection that they feel when they live in a shelter or start um you know panhandling or applying for low-wage entry-level jobs the that is such just a cesspool for breeding mental illness because there's so much shame and rejection that we as American society tend to um, react to these populations with. And that breaks my heart. Um, you know, what? I did not I,
0: realize that was a correlation. We, I think we so oh, often it assume it's so the rough. other way.
1: We think it's very, we absolutely do. Um, I think we, but there's, you do not need to be homeless very long. Some research says that it's as long as it's as short as three days. Some research says it's longer before your odds of developing a mental illness just skyrocket because it's so traumatic to be living outside or to be in shelters or being in your car. Your car, by the way, is not a safe place to live. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of these are low level, um, so-called, you know, lower risk, more manageable mental illnesses like, anxiety or depression or obsessive-compulsive tendencies. Um, But many of them, you know, homelessness has such a high rate of, you know, violence and, um, you know, violence towards them, not necessarily violence among homeless camps, but just, you know, the odds of being hit by a car are higher for homeless. The odds of, you know, so many different types of, I don't know, so many things are higher and harder if you are homeless, um, and I think that oftentimes people either are unaware, or they forget that. Um, I think a second thing is, is we have such a you get what's coming to you type of society. We we might think, oh, we might be someone who says, oh, I don't, I don't think that they necessarily deserve it. You know, sometimes, sometimes this just happens, but then two minutes later we say, oh. You know, that's how karma is. You, you, what goes around comes around or you get what, you know, we, we so many Americans do believe that there is a justice to how um, our lives are. And we look at these populations that are so vulnerable and so desperate, and we think, you must have done something to get there. And it is true that many populations have had one or two major decisions or failings that they had control over. Um, But what is also true is usually there are many more circumstances that were outside of their control. Mm -hmm. Um, Homelessness rarely happens simply because of one poor choice or failure. It is not usually simply going bankrupt or losing your job or developing an addiction or mental illness. There are plenty of people who have mental illnesses or addictions or make poor financial choices that are stably housed. There are plenty of Americans that do that. Usually, statistically speaking, you have um, two hardships that happen at the same time um, and an underlying underlying risk of um, harsh economic conditions, which in the Bay Area, there's a lot of gentrification and a lot of skyrocketing housing rates and it gets Mm -hmm. very complex but very quickly and I'm really not meaning to make this podcast all about you know the social issues of homelessness but it is interesting to me how many people view this whole you know demographic of people in crisis and just generally believe that well you got what came to you or similarly think like it's too bad you're not getting help they see someone on the side of the road and think, "Geez, why don't they go to the sh- go to a shelter?" And what they don't realize is that in many many urban areas there are thousands of people more homeless people than there are shelter beds. Mm-hmm. In our county, there are. M- I don't have the exact numbers, but there are many times more people per shelter bed. So often that person you see on the side of the road is getting connected to resources. They might be on housing list and there's a good chance they're on a shelter bed list and they are waiting. Um, Many, many low income housing lists, you call them up and say, what does your wait list look like? And then the Bay Area, it is not uncommon to hear, oh, our wait list is two to five years and it is closed.
0: Wow. Two to five years and closed. So they don't even... And on,
1: on the list oh not even allowed on the list don't even send your application it will be shredded or returned to you now thankfully i am happy to say that in my new position and lots of counties are practicing best practices to change many things and there's a lot of exciting advocacy gr- work going on but in the meantime like especially in the bay area there are thousands more homeless people than there are shoulder beds um especially for the generally chronically homeless. So mm-hmm. so don't judge too harshly. You yeah. you know, you, you you also don't know who I know many, many homeless adults who are employed. So this mm-hmm. idea of just go out and get a job. I had many homeless clients who were li- several homeless clients living in their car and they were teachers and they worked wow. full time and they would get a shower and then they would go and they would teach their students all day long. And their students had no idea they were living in their minivan.
0: Oh so this idea
1: that the homeless are always um, unemployed slackers um, is, is a misnomer. It's really damaging. And actually, it's very damaging. for the. Um, it can create quite a barrier for people to get help because yeah. they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to be associated with all of that stigma. Um, and even the last thing I want to touch upon, and maybe this is what I feel strongly is about, is we have this phrase in America that beggars can't be choosers. And I just want to say that that is true and that is sad. We, um, if you are in poverty, there are so many decisions that you no longer have control over. If you are getting your, um, if you are on WIC or on food stamps or getting your food at a food pantry or if you are on a shelter wait list, your meals and the shelter location that you are assigned to or even what you can spend your food stamp benefits on. So much that is regulated by someone much higher than you that you have never met before. And it can vary county by county. Um, what a homeless individual can use their food stamps to purchase in Contra Costa County here in the Bay Area is different than one county over in Alameda County. Yeah. Um, and that is very confusing and hard, mm-hmm. hard to keep track of, honestly. Um, and if you are an organization that is serving the homeless, you are typically very reliant on donations and philanthropy from, you know, these do-gooders in the community, and they, they donate these goods. Um, or they donate money for you to purchase goods and then the agency wa- wants to purchase them in bulk, of course, um, for to serve the most. And then they are passed out and they are distributed. And I'm grateful for that process and it has been profound to be a part of that process. But it also means that goods are passed out to you and you, as an adult, are no longer choosing your own toothbrush or your own dinner. Wow. And that's hard. And sometimes we hear pushback for people to say, Oh, I had an interaction with a soup kitchen and someone, someone said they didn't want the brownie. They wanted something else instead. And they were so rude to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think one thing I just want to say is, Oh my goodness, like that is hard. That is hard when you are treated badly by someone who you were trying to serve and, that That is a hard experience, and I want to respect that. I also want to respect that if you are in poverty and your housing and so much of your basic needs are out of your control, I really believe that almost any time you are given the opportunity to have any autonomy, and if that is, you know, choosing milk over juice or choosing a different color sleeping bath or choosing, you know, to do something at a different time, or I don't want this lunch, I want a different lunch, you're going to lash out and you're going to be so desperate to feel that autonomy and that power. And sometimes that does not come across very kindly. Um, So I... That that was probably more, more of an no, answer those, than you were looking for, Monica. Those but, answered a lot of questions um, I
0: had along the way. Yeah. You know, as someone who doesn't regularly interact with the homeless population, I feel mm-hmm. like um, many people will feel like me. A lot of times it's just when you see these people, you do want to help them, but there's fear because you don't mm-hmm. know um, how they're going to respond or interact or... You know, as a woman, too, you you worry about that. But also, I think it's just this discomfort that we have because seeing these people so low, it's an affront to how we live. And it's just this stark reminder about the unfairness of life. And it, it can be uncomfortable, you know, to have that. Oh, absolutely.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. And you know what? I think it should be uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. I think that if you see someone, another human, that is um, in obvious suffering, I I think, you know, I want to honor that gut feeling that we have that feels uncomfortable and so that this isn't right and I don't like this feeling. I think that if you do see someone who looks like they have... Um, poor hygiene or they are lacking connection to basic needs or they look neglected or um, unstable or they, you know, they just have these obvious, you know, issues going on and we feel uncomfortable with that. Um, I say own that. I say absolutely. I think someone else's suffering should make us all uncomfortable. To me, the difference is, So what do you do about it? Do you Mm -hmm. then, like, judge them and spit on them and then secretly, like, mock them or not so secretly mock them? Or do you say, I feel uncomfortable about this and I'm going to take this discomfort and I'm going to advocate for change. I feel uncomfortable with how many homeless people I see in my community, so I'm going to write a letter or I'm going to donate money or I'm going to volunteer to learn more. Um, I think that discomfort can be the undercurrent for a lot of really powerful change. And I think that it's... You know, I think it's great when change can be motivated by simply discomfort before it, you know, um, boils to being something bigger than discomfort for, you know, um, but no, I think, I think it is completely fine if you are seeing people that are high risk or high need and you don't like how you feel, or you don't you don't look forward to it, or you feel awkward. Of course not. You're seeing someone who is vulnerable and suffering, and usually not in a situation where you're expecting to see someone vulnerable yeah. and suffering. So
0: for a layman like me, then what what is the best thing mm-hmm. we can do? Like what you know, we don't have like what if we don't have um, a lot of wealth to draw on to donate to these to these things, or maybe not a lot of time either. What what is the most helpful thing? someone like me can do to help oh you
1: you know what just whatever you can do go and do it I'm a big supporter of jumping in and volunteering um and figure out a cause that there's so much um there's so many causes homelessness or refugees or battered women or you know low literacy adults or there's so many causes to jump into find one that you care about Hmm. and you know, go to Google, I went to Google, and just see what you can do. And then be creative, especially communities usually have so many more needs than they have resources to fill. Yeah. I know women who say, I really like art, and I want to do good with art. And so they found um, they found an organization that helped women recovering from crisis and said, you have a captive audience of women, and we are artists. Can we do art classes? And this organization said, we've never done art classes, but why not? We can start doing Monday art classes. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you have something to give, find a way to give it. Um, It does not need to be wealth. It can be time. It can be, it really can be making your um, community stronger. I'm a big supporter that those those meals that you bring to your neighbor, the watching your neighbor's kids, the fabric of simply making your neighborhood safe and strong, that is so important.
0: Mm-hmm. Because,
1: I mean, that, that is, that's, That helps people that are resettling um, Mm -hmm. into stable housing, resettling after divorce, domestic violence, refugees, maybe after chronic homelessness. If you move into a neighborhood where people know your name and they bring you brownies when you move in, oh my goodness, that makes a very real difference. If someone moves into a neighborhood where no one knows their name, no one's waving at them no one's checking on them when their lawn isn't mowed something like that those neighborhoods and those places that are not well connected are just at such i think that they're at much higher risk for um for crisis and just you know less less stable communities so even even if you feel like you can't do anything if you are being literally a good neighbor that is doing something there are ways to volunteer online um, you know, you can volunteer at the United Nations, which is a great organization worldwide. They have an online volunteering program where you can do all sorts of projects, either short-term or, or long-term. Um, really, just I want to say get out there and do something that you love. And it's okay if, you know, you do something once or twice and you think this was valuable, but this wasn't the fit that I feel passionately about and you pick something else. That's really um, cool to think about that. So just find something you love and go do it and share it.
0: And, you know, I think the common thread that I'm seeing in everything you've talked about today is that the most powerful thing we can do is to connect with people. And you said, mm-hmm. you, you said in the beginning, how one of the biggest parts of your job has been this message that you're sending to people. I am going to be present with you and I'm going Mm -hmm. to be present in your suffering. And I don't know, that's the biggest thing I got too of a way for us to help is to connect. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, put yourself in or your family in a bad situation. But it does mean like when you are offering that money or those socks or whatever, look in them look them in the eye. Let them know like I Mm -hmm. see you are human and so am I. And Mm here's this connection. You know, I, I don't know. That's what I, is really standing out to me, Juliana. So near, near the beginning of the interview, I um, you were mentioning that this was not a work you were planning on going into. And I want to know how, what was the push that, that made you get into this work? And, and I want to go know from there how, how the work interplays with your life and vice versa. Okay,
1: those are great questions, Monica. So as I mentioned at the beginning, I did not grow up thinking that I was going to do this work. Um, But partway through college when I was bouncing around between, you know, did I want design or writing or business or some of these different um, areas of study, all of which were great and I was really excited about, um, partway through college I experienced a pretty profound family loss that really shook me and it really shook my sense of self and the ideas that I had for my future and just some of the expectations for my life. Mm -hmm. And I think we all experience some, you know, milestones of either death or marriage or big family change or disease that can be opportunities for serious self-reflection. And this was a very significant um, stage of self-reflection in my life. And while I was navigating... um, different feelings of grief and loss and anxiety and just wondering what this, you know, how the fog I was experiencing was going to lift. Um, there was a, a quote from a religious leader that I really loved, and I don't have it in front of me, but the gist was that the best balm for um, anxiety was to, um, was to lose yourself in service and that serving someone else was the best way to forgive about, forgive about your own problems hmm. And, you know, I heard that and I read that and I thought, OK, if that's it, if that is true, then that is what I'm going to hinge my hinge the rest of my undergraduate degree. And that's what I'm going to hinge my career on. Um, wow. Because right now in my early 20s, that's what I feel like I need. I need this fog to lift and I need this all these promises of, you know, and this this hope. Um, that serving other people can work magic and miracles in your life, that is what I need. And so I had this um, I had this quote that hit me very profoundly. And it's funny because I don't even have it memorized, but the message of it really, really um, resonated with me. And early in some of my undergraduate classes, when we were learning about some of the disparities between families and family outcomes and just, you know, the infant mortality rates between, you know, racial groups and the marriage and divorce rates between different populations in America and the suicide rate and some of these different hard family issues, I was just overwhelmed by how, um, how... Both the experiences I had felt that they actually were heavy and that they were things that I was allowed to feel deeply and, you know, um, seek support for, but also that my life was still so good and so beautiful. Um, there's um, a religious hymn and a line that says, because I have been given much, I too must give. but I'm not... A sp- especially musical person, but that line just carried me through my undergraduate degree Uh, of, you know, despite the loss, I have been given much and I too must give. And I believe that, I believe that that is um, a beautiful approach to community building and to soul building and to getting through hard times. Um, Again, this is, this is just, you know, uh, him that, someone religious penned, but it doesn't say I too must give when I lose the baby weight or when I get through the postpartum depression yeah. or when I pay off my student loans. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. so I just, that, that was a motivator for me, but you know what, it worked. I feel like that decision to embrace service and to embrace community work um, was one of the best decisions I've ever made. (laughs) Um, I feel like so many um, of my ideas about myself and my identity and how I view the world and the expectations I have for myself and for other people all really evolved after I just threw myself into service. Um, And it's interesting because as I mentioned earlier, my original dreams for career were all good. I wanted I wanted to connect with other people and I wanted to bring joy. Um, but honestly, some of my first experiences with that were through, you know, customer service jobs and creativity jobs. They they were not through these very harsh in the trenches with, you know, those who were suffering. Um, but one thing I learned is that although some of the stigma and stereotypes about social work. Some of those are fair, and some of those are spot on. One thing I learned is that you shouldn't let the fringe um, negativity and risks and the negative stereotypes—you shouldn't let that stop you from doing something that is could be very profound and healing and life-changing. Um, hmm. And absolutely, there's some there are some downsides and some hard hard parts with working with high need, and high risk community groups. But, oh my goodness, I'm so glad that I didn't let the stereotypes of being, you know, this angry, bitter, hairy, late, you know, social justice, social worker person that, you know, I feel like the media had ingrained into me as a very negative role. Um, I'm so glad that I didn't let that idea um, sway me from jumping in and connecting with, um, with this, this world that now, now I love and can't imagine not being a part of. You know, I just love that you've been able to
0: turn things around. And, and one of those things is those stereotypes. I think we think, um, we, we think of social workers as people who aren't, are very unhappy. And I, but that is because of the heavy, heavy, heavy work that they are doing and, and the lack mm-hmm. of appreciation they get for it. And I want to know how have you been able to turn that around? Or maybe sometimes you haven't been able to. So what do you do to make this heavy work transform into a positive influence
1: rather than a negative influence? Um, That is a great question, Monica. So, again, I'm not perfect at this, but I have a few things that I know help. Um, First of all, I have a great support system and a great support family. Although um, neither of my parents worked in the social services, my dad I would say works in a field that might share some of my same clients. So some of the issues that I bump into are some things that some of their family members are familiar with. So Mm -hmm. even though I play a very different role in the community, I feel like there is a base level of understanding. Um, Yet at the same time, um, the great man that I'm married to works in an entirely different field. He works in finance Mm -hmm. and his world and my world could not be, sometimes I feel like they could not be more different than each other. Yeah. I have, we have this anecdotal story we have to explain this. He came home one day from the office talking about a client and something general like, oh, we found an error on there, you know, such and such report. Um, And I felt like it was a big deal, but it turned out to only be $5 million. So, you know, the error is even worth like fixing. And my jaw just fell down. And I was like, this mistake was only $5 million. Are you joking me? (laughs) And in this type of reporting and in this type of what they were doing, like that was close enough to round, like that was not going to move the needle for whatever decisions they were making. Mm -hmm. Um, But I am thinking, my goodness, these, these, uh, these vulnerable people who walk up and down my hallway asking for $2 so they can ride the bus yeah like, and we are out of bus passes to give to them, or I don't have you know two dollars or enough volunteers to get them, like you know, I just can't even fathom like five million dollars not being a big enough deal to change a decision um, so we work in very different worlds. And honestly, I think that's one of the best things for both of us because Mm -hmm. the world of homelessness and poverty and racial inequality and sexual exploitation and these different topics that um, hit me on a day-to-day basis, they are real and they are important, but you know what? They are not the entire world. They might Mm -hmm. be the entire world for everyone experiencing them, but there are good, good, exciting things that are happening well beyond the scope of poverty and homelessness that sometimes you can't see unless you've someone else help bridge bridge you into a different place. I um, and so I, I love that my husband is in a field, um, specifically his clients are doing some very exciting things in the world and they are up to a lot of exciting innovation that I think some of which is going to do good for the world. And knowing that is important, I think that... We need to dedicate personally, I think, for the integrity of our souls (laughs) and just, you know, how we process information. We need to give the good news just as much energy as the bad news Mm. because someone worked really, really hard for that good news to be a triumph and that innovation and those that, that thriving, someone worked hard and someone sacrificed for that. And I think that we need to have our eyes open and applaud and celebrate those those triumphs um, in the exact same way that we need to be present and recognize that there are failures and there are pain. So on the mm-hmm. day-to-day level, it helps that I um, come home to a home that, first of all, I come home to a home. And it helps that I'm not currently homeless. You know, mm-hmm. I had a safe you know, I have my basic needs met, and I have my social needs met. I have, I have people that are very supportive of me. Um, and some weeks, I feel like I, I do it well. And some weeks, I probably spend too much on smoothies and pedicures, trying to self-care all of the problems, yeah. you know, myself. And that happens. Um, and honestly, for me personally, I'd probably rather buy too much, spend too much a little – you know, a few more trips to Jamba Juice and my local, you know, small business nail salon, then turn into an angry, bitter person. And I know I that it's not smart. just a binary, like, either or decision, but sometimes in the moment that is how it feels. Sometimes you do feel like if yeah. someone else doesn't, you know, do something for me, I will spontaneously combust. Yes. Keeping a sense of humor um, and taking good notes, I think I had a running spreadsheet of the things that were really funny. Like, yeah. really funny. Like people just bringing me moss and bowls, is sort of funny, um, or just quotes that people would say that maybe I should not repeat on a podcast. Um, I kept <laughs> a little spreadsheet, and you know, I kept nice. those down. And the times that were really moving, I wrote those down too. That's great. You know, and I did not write down every client interaction that would have been tedious and you know diluted the point. Um, and maybe some of the negative things, some of the negative feedback that would splash onto me because although some feedback I got from clients was really powerful and complimentary and made me feel really good, a lot of it was harsh. Mm. Um, and when people are desperate, there's often not a lot of emotional energy left to be gracious. Yeah. Um, okay. And when you are in the first line of helping people in suffering, you know, gratitude and graciousness is not usually, you know, on the f- forefront of someone's mind. Um, mm-hmm. And so, keeping the not just the the funny things, but kind of the absurd things, for me, keeping track of those helped just keep everything in context. You know, kind of keep keep um, things well rounded. But you know, I'm not perfect. Some weeks, I come home from work and I feel like I'm on fire, and I am connecting. I am, I have a sphere of influence, and I feel like you know, all of the good things, all of the good energy. And some mornings I wake up and I have dreams about all of my homeless clients. And I have these dreams that they're all suddenly living in my living room because that's better than them being outside. And I wake up in this panic that suddenly I have 30 homeless clients in my living room. I have a baby and just, you know, yeah. the, all of the like internal stress, anxiety symptoms that show you that you were working too hard and on the mm-hmm. fringe of burnout. Like I've had those too. So you know, little things like I love my job and I feel passionate about it, but I don't talk about it with everyone all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I work hard to try to connect with people that are living different lives, letting you know other people have important roles. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I love that. About you know you, that I feel like is important, and I think mm-hmm. that that not only is a gracious, good way to stay connected, but I think I think it is kind of self care one hundred and one, and it is easier to celebrate yourself when you're already in the mode of celebrating everyone else i not saying it comes really automatically that. but i think it does come easier oh my goodness
0: juliana that was a total quotable right there <laughs> awesome oh i have i have a final question for you and i feel like you've been weaving so so many i don't know just nuggets throughout this whole interview of, of takeaways that, that we all can have from your story, but also that you, you have had in your own life. But I I would like to know what is one of those overarching lessons of your life of the, of the past 10 years?
1: Hmm. Um, I think the overarching, just, you know, you never, you can always be surprised. You never know where life is going to lead you. If you had asked me 10 years ago and said, you know, 20-year-old Juliana, you will be living in 10 years from now, you will have experienced X, Y, and Z tragedies, but you will also be married to this professional that has A, B, and C successes and you will have gone to graduate from BYU and have a master's degree and have a beautiful baby and you will have a career in the homeless services, I would have laughed in her face and said, really? No, that is someone else's life. That is not my life. Hmm. Um, I think that life can change very quickly, both um, in hardship and also it has amazed me time and time again how good life can change. Hmm. Um, I think... Also though, I think one thing um for more like myself, not just like an overarching life lesson, but for myself I think yeah. in the last decade I have reconciled a little more of um kind of who I am and how to best use and leverage some of my um some of my personality as I think I mentioned several times in this interview. So I'm a softie. I'm a highly sensitive person. Don't show me sad commercials or yeah. scary movies. Mm-hmm. I cry easily. You know, I think most people peg me pretty quickly of like, oh, that girl, she's in polka dots and Peter Pan collars and she likes to eat salads at lunch and she is just a sweetheart. And I think I think so much of that is true. I do wear my heart on my sleeve and I think that that is Um, I mean, that's obviously the reason why I had some hesitations about going into a a field that focused on suffering so much is because I didn't know if I had the, you know, just the the resiliency for it, you know, in my heart. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I also have a really sassy side to me. Yeah, you need (laughs) Um, it. You do. And I think that for a long time, you know, when you're growing up, you don't always know how the different dimensions of your personality are going to play out or how you'd best use them or... You know, sometimes one characteristic works really well in dating, but it doesn't really work well in the classroom or professionally. And you're still kind of mm-hmm. working the kinks out of how to best leverage your different strengths. Um, you know, and I think the social services are a field where I feel very comfortable with my strengths. I, um, so great. I feel like I was and have been, I would say the thing that makes me um, most confident as a case manager is not the fact that I am a hard personality or someone that has been there and done that and does not get easily offended. That is not my personality and I do not think that I need that personality to thrive serving vulnerable suffering people. You know what I think has served me well the most? It's the fact that I will sit with you and I will feel your grief and when you start crying, often I will cry with you. Um, mm-hmm. when you come into my office and you have been abused or you just got some awful upsetting trauma, I generally will not be looking at you with the eyes of like, oh yeah, I've been there, done that. Like,
0: you mm-hmm. know, with this
1: callous, callous heart. Um, instead I just, every time i am overwhelmed with like, oh my goodness, like that is heavy. Like, let me sit with you and hear your story. Um, and For me, the more I have fostered that intuition to be sensitive and to feel and to be present and to connect on a very emotional level, um, I think that that ability to be soft with people who are in pain has been my biggest strength professionally. Um, But then also having just enough of a sassiness to me that when they need someone strong, I'm there. Yeah. but if you are outside my door, and you're waiting in line for a shower, and you make some comment against women, or against another racial group, or especially if you make some comment against, um, you know, some gender sexual minority, oh my goodness, I fly out of my office so fast, and I put you in line. And I, have this, like, inner, you know, kind of the mama bear comes out, and I will... I'm not easily, um, provoked, but when I am, it is always, or I think almost always, um, because I'm trying to protect someone and protect someone who needs protection. And I think that although that could be very surprising to some of my clients, I don't think that was ever surprising to my friends who know me well because, you know, many of you have seen my sassiness. Um, but I think that you, you're only as safe of an audience and as a support system as you are the strength that you're willing um, to offer on their behalf. Um, you know, yeah. it's nice. if I can offer someone a warm, quiet office and I can offer them lunch, but if I'm also not willing to stand up for them and I'm not willing to march outside of my office and tell someone to knock off the verbal abuse, then I'm not creating a long-term safe space. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, those those are qualities that I don't think I had figured out when I was 20. Um, I know I had these qualities. I knew that I was a softie, and I knew that I could be a little fast, and I knew that I wanted to help people, but I also knew that I didn't want to get too overwhelmed and burnt out, and I knew, I just, you know, so many of these things I knew, but I didn't know how that they would interplay and piece together, and um, and it. now I'm, I'm really thrilled with how they've worked. Yeah, um, good for you. So, it's you know it's it's really a joy I think that that's one of the joys of my work is that I feel like I can make a difference but I'm making a difference because I'm connecting and I'm also using skills that are needed and they need they need me and I think yeah. they need many people many personalities but one of them is the skills and personality that I have to offer and I don't say that to be you know conceited because I know that they need many many people um and many personalities, but I do think that um, people do their most valuable work, and maybe especially women, when you feel confident that you are needed. It's so easy to demean yourself in, you know, all in the air of being humble, but I think that especially if you're investing in something that's your career or service that you're offering to someone else, my goodness, you should be able to own it, you know, Hmm. like own it. What I love, and this is what I'm giving. I know it won't change the entire world, but I believe that this hour of my time I'm giving to you will make a difference. Um, and so I'm really grateful that I, you know, I found I found a role that I feel confident and energized by. And I'm not saying that I have it all down or that I know what my life will be like in 10 years because I might be working with a very different, you know, demographic or population then. And I leave my the doors open for that. Um, but I know that I really, I love where I am now and it's really, it it has changed me in a lot of ways.
0: Well, Juliana, that was so beautiful. There are so many good things from this interview I think can apply to everybody, no matter what their job is, no matter what their passions are or their roles are in life, we can apply what you have said here. So thank you so much for this great interview.
1: Thank you, Monica. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Juliana, I wrote so many quotes of things you said that I wanted to just keep for myself and to remember. But that last one about celebrating ourselves to celebrating others, that's the one I am personally going to focus on this week, especially with service in mind. So just so you listeners know, Juliana had shared some of her most impactful stories. She did so without naming any names or being very specific, but then we felt that we should cut them out just to be double shirt, uh, for confidentiality. So I wish you could have heard them, but I think the interview does share the impact this work has had on Juliana and how we all can follow her lead in our own way by serving those around us, even by starting small. Um, so thank you, Juliana you can direct message me and let me know what you learned from this episode or use the hashtag about progress podcast. And I'd also love to hear what you do while you are listening to this podcast. If you're like me, it's like working out uh, whatever it is around the house that needs to be done. So I'd love to hear. Let's turn to my do something highlight today in case you forgot this is a short uh, this is short for do something that scares you a campaign. I started to encourage people to try new things from big to small and there's more information on that in the show notes if you are interested. Today's highlight comes from my friend and listener Adrienne Wooten. This girl she, she has been through so so much but she just has class and she has grit and someone she's someone I admire so much Adrienne just goes after things that most people wouldn't and one of those I wanted to share was this past week she posted about putting up walls in her basement and she's doing it (laughs) basically on her own so you heard that right and you know what she doesn't have a public profile so I can't share it the photo but just know that it looks like a professional contractor did the job so I'm so proud of you Adrienne way to go If you would like to share your own do-something highlight or to highlight someone you know or even nominate someone to be interviewed on the show, please contact me. I would love to hear about all of that. You'll find my contact information in the show notes and you can always direct message me on social media. I'll see you next Wednesday for another interview and until then, take care of yourself.